You can find your way now back to the book of Proverbs, uh, to Proverbs chapter 3, where we've left off, and uh, we'll continue our verse-by-verse look at this wonderful book this morning. Uh, One of the most significant epidemics of our society today uh, is uh, it's, it's a psychological uh, diagnosis. It's, it's a clinical problem, and uh, and really, if you uh, if you take time to uh, to look into the nature of this, you realize that th- this is really a significant problem uh, in our country. It's the problem of fear and anxiety. And I know none of you ever deal with fear or anxiety either, like I never deal with it. But uh, th- this is this has become somewhat of a nationwide uh, ec- epidemic. Um, uh, guys that do studies on this sort of sort of thing. Uh, conclude that 40 million people in the United States suffer from some sort of an, an anxiety disorder. Um, now that's, uh, that's, that statistic is a little bit old. I, I would assume that things have gotten uh, probably worse since then. Um, and uh, very, very significant. 40 million people, that's 18% of the adult population uh, suffer from some sort of an anxiety disorder. Uh, those disorders cost over $46 billion annually uh, through treatment and therapy and other interventions that people turn to when they're struggling with this sort of thing. Uh, another study said, well, what are, what are Americans so anxious about? What, what are they all worried about? Well, 48% of Americans that were polled said that they, uh, they were, are worried about finances, um, which is ironic since we're the richest nation in the world. 34% of Americans said they are worried about health issues. Another 32% uh, employment issues. And uh, so then you start asking them, well, what do you do about it, right? When you're struggling with this anxiety, this chronic fear, what do you do about it? Well, 80, 82% of Americans said they watch TV, read, or listen to music in order to cope with their stress or anxiety. 71% talk to family or friends. 62% pray or meditate. Uh, and you think that that's encouraging, but just remember what meditate means in our culture, right? It's, it's more Buddhist than it is uh, biblical, unfortunately. Uh, 55% exercise, 37% eat, and there's all other statistics that we talk about on that regard. Uh, 26% smoke, drink, or do drugs. 12% take prescription drugs. So th- this is, again, this, this is a, a nationwide problem with a significant percentage of our population dealing with one of these anxiety disorders, an issue of fear or worry. Uh, speaking of the drugs that people often turn to, uh, in Canada, psychological drugs are the second most prescribed drugs next to cardiac medications. That's really quite remarkable. You think about all the pharmaceuticals that are out there, and you know they classify these drugs, and, and the, um, the psychological drugs are the second most prescribed drugs uh, next to the cardiac meds that uh, people use. Um, the most popular psychological drug used to treat anxiety in America is the ninth most prescribed drug in America. So that's your considering your blood pressure meds, your cardiac meds, you know things for diabetes, you know, all those other medical issues that people have, and anxiety meds are the ninth most prescribed drug in America. That's 34 million prescriptions annually. Another drug used to treat anxiety ranks. Uh, the sixth most common drug by drug sales. So it's not the most common one prescribed, but it's the sixth most popular drug in terms of what it's costing, $3 billion. Uh, that was back in uh, 2004. 
so what do we do about this, right? What do we do about this national problem? If you read the experts, this is, this, this is literally what they say to do. I am not making this up, okay? You have a national stress out week. Right? You designate a month that is, you know, you know, stress awareness month, which we actually have, and a, a, a take a day off of stress day. Uh, these are in the fall, so if you're stressed out in the spring, too bad. You gotta wait till the fall, I guess. That's how that works. Um, so, so literally, this, this, our nation's experts, people that get paid lots of money to study these problems and what to do about them, this is the counsel to the American culture. What do you do? You have this national stress out week. Uh, it's November 12th to 18th. Now, what do you do during that week? You take five deep breaths. Should we just do this now? Um, five, you, you visit five loved ones. Or, better, you can throw a stress-free house party. Um, and if you contact the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, you can get a free house party kit that they will send to your door, including shipping, uh, to help you to have this uh, stress-free uh, house party. Um, uh, seriously, uh, th- this is a big deal, and, and when you read even uh, what, I, and I kid you not, th- these are experts. These are people with you know letters after their name. These are smart people that study this sort of thing, and this is their counsel. Um, and we say that's the best the world has to offer. Uh, well, in our verse, our section of Proverbs today, we're going to talk about uh, the subject of fear today. The title of the message today is "Panic Attacked." Panic attacked. And uh, we're going to see uh, in just two verses in the flow of Proverbs chapter 3, uh, Solomon introduced this topic of fear and anxiety to his children. And of course, uh, we, we old people that are looking over the shoulder of this parental conversation that's going on in the book of Proverbs, I think we can learn a lot about uh, what fear is, why it happens, and uh, something of God's counsel. If if the best the world has to offer is to hold a stress-free week or a, a, an anxiety-free house party or to offer some sort of you know a, a prescription drug intervention, um, good night. We, we, we better hope that God's word has better answers than that, and of course it does. Uh, the Bible's the Bible's perspective on many psychological disorders, as you know, is not that they're medical issues or psychological issues in in the framework of how our society thinks about psychological issues. They're actually spiritual issues. In fact, that's a good test. If if you read, you know, in a in a newspaper or you're watching the news or you know you read a blog article, something on Facebook, and it's describing something as a psychological issue. And you remember, wait a minute, my Bible talks about that. My Bible talks about that as something that's related to my spiritual walk with God. That, that, that's our clue right there that the world has probably made a misdiagnosis. right? They, they've, they've thought of it as a psychological issue when the Bible is presenting it as a spiritual issue. And we say, well, well, why would all these smart people that study this sort of thing in our culture, why would they conclude that it's some sort of medical thing, it's some sort of psychological thing that nobody understands, when the, when the Bible is so clear that many of those things are actually spiritual issues that God says, hey, I've got help for you in the gospel, in, in the Bible that, that, uh, that helps us. Why would all those people make that conclusion? And the answer is... Most people that do those studies do not acknowledge the even, that even a, a spiritual realm exists. They don't believe in a spiritual part of people. They, they think our biology is all that we have. And if biology is all that we have, if our genetics is all that we are, 
then you understand that all those weird things that people struggle with out there must be understood through this medical model, through some sort of a disease model that says, well, you know, your brain's messed up or you got bad genetics or, or something like that. Uh, but we know from the scripture that the Bible says we're not just a body, we're not just physiology, but we're a spiritual being also, a heart, a soul, a spirit, an inner man. And so that's one of the reasons why the Bible often has such a different take on these sorts of things. It, it's not that Christians are saying, hey, all those scientists are wrong when they make these psychological diagnoses. What we're saying is they've started off with the wrong anthropology. They've started off assuming people are only biology instead of recognizing the biblical view, which is people are both body and soul. So with that in mind, uh, parachute in to Proverbs chapter 3 with me, and uh, let's look at uh, the verses that we're going to investigate today. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 25, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. That's all we're going to do today, and, and we may not even get through that. We'll see. Um, in order, in order to back into this this verse here about fear, and, and we notice, do not be afraid of sudden fear. That's actually a very strange thing to say, if you think about it. And, and we'll we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's let's back into this topic of fear by zooming out for a minute and talking about a broader subject that I think we need to understand if we're going to appreciate what the Bible teaches us about the experience of fear, okay? So let's let's talk about this other issue called control, okay? What is control? I mean, we, sometimes we hear that, you know, that guy has control issues or she has control issues. And, and that's, again, one of those psychological terms that actually is very helpful because it, it points to a real issue. But like a lot of things in, in the world, uh, their observations are right, but their conclusions are wrong. So, so let, let's think with me, what is a biblical understanding of control? And if you're saying, what's control? You'll see what I mean by that in a minute, okay? Well, if you're in Proverbs 3, just look back a few verses to verses 5 and 6. This is the the theme verse of uh, this section here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That verse reminds us of something that we learn all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And that is this, that we were made to trust in and depend upon God who alone controls all things. Okay, He alone controls all things. This verse points us, don't lean on your own understanding, trust in the Lord. That's what we see back in Genesis 1 and 2. God makes Adam and Eve to depend on him, to trust him. And, and we notice um, that part of the reason that we were made to trust in and depend on God is because we are not, and, and this, this may be news for some of you, so just hang on, we are not in control of all things. God is in control of all things. And we know that uh, verses like Colossians 1.17, Jesus holds all things together. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, the, the word that comes to mind when we think about God's control, of course, is his sovereignty. And we think of a verse like, like Psalm 103, verse 19, his sovereignty rules over all. What does that mean? That means that God, as the one who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, who is all-knowing, he micromanages every atom in the universe 
every day since the beginning of time to the conclusion of time. That is the sovereignty of God. He, he is, he is the, the divine man behind the curtain pulling all the levers and pushing all the switches, making this whole thing run so that, that no, no molecule is out of place today, but all things consist in exactly the place, in exactly the role, doing exactly the very action that God desires it to have. And that's true at the molecular level. It's true in the relational level. It's true for you and me as people. It's our circumstances. It's our environment. It's everything. God is sovereign over his creation. And that's what that word means. Now, we notice if we think back, we, we, we don't have time to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. You guys know your Bible well enough to know this, that God gives men and women abilities and responsibilities which he commands us to fulfill as his stewards as we depend upon him. And we remember back from Genesis 1 and 2 some of those things. God told Adam to do what? Yeah, tend the garden and keep it. Okay, what's another thing God told Adam to do? What's that? Name all the animals. Okay, very good. What else did he say to do? What's that? Be fruitful and multiply. And God had to provide Eve before that could happen, but that comes later on. That's right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, so we see God made Adam and Eve dependent on him. And though he is sovereign, meaning he's in control overall, God nonetheless gave responsibilities to Adam and Eve gave them the ability to control those things or do those things, but all the while to engage in those issues as a stewardship, key phrase, as they depended on God. Okay, so those were not independent pursuits. Those were pursuits for them to engage in while they depended on this all-controlling, all-powerful God. Uh, tending the garden, naming animals, raising children, having dominion over the earth, those are some examples. And, and we see, you know, we get sort of a microcosm of those, but as, as uh, society develops into the early chapters of Genesis, we recognize uh, how some of those responsibilities and items play out. Okay? So, so you say, that's great, we understand that. God's in control of all things. He gives us a stewardship to, to be involved in certain responsibilities. So, so what happened? Well, again, in Genesis 3, all goes wrong, right? In Genesis 3, in our fallenness, men and women reject dependence upon God and pursue an illusion of self-sufficiency and self-dependence. This is Romans 1, that they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. They, they suppress the truth of God so that they can do their own thing and be their own boss. Uh, all right thinking, as we often say, right, Pastor Terry, starts in, Genesis, in Romans chapter 1 in terms of thinking about these things. Now, now, now here, here's, here's where we, we need to take one step toward our text in Proverbs. This tendency of all human beings to reject dependence upon God and pursue self-sufficiency and self-dependence, that, that aspect of our fallenness, that, that function of the fact that we are sinful, depraved human beings, that, that reality expresses itself in our efforts to sinfully control ourselves, our environment, and other people. Do you see that? The, the reason that all of us have this compulsion to control things around us that we have no power to control goes back to this rejection of God's authority and our desire to be self-sufficient self and independent of Him. Do you see that? 
And uh, think with me, what are some ways that people try to control things that they don't really have the control over? And really God has not said, hey, that's, go, that's your responsibility. What are some ways people try to control things in a sinful way? Talk, talk to me here. What, what do you see? Okay, by controlling others. Very good. Okay, what else? Okay, so sometimes you use like fear, intimidation. Okay, what else? That's good, good. Plan everything. Like making lists and stuff. Is this getting too personal? I, I, I'm not going to use it. I, I had in my notes a are you a control freak quiz to give all of you today, but I restrained myself mostly because I failed it too. So, um, okay, Think with me. We, we want to control our appearance. And yet the Bible says the outer man is decaying. Right? Um, we want to control our health. And yet we can't always do that, can we? As wonderful as medicine is, we can't control that sometimes. Relationships. Be honest. Controlling your children. Controlling your spouse. Controlling your parents. Some of you kids are pretty good at that, by the way. I've been watching you. So many other things. And, and, and that, that desire to control is a direct consequence of this tendency that we have to reject God, to reject His authority. I mean, who would not, in our right mind, who would not want to submit to a good, wise Father who actually does control everything and is working all things for your good and His glory? That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? And yet, in our fallenness, we think we know better. We think we have a better way. And so we try to, we try to micromanage things. Now, Watch where this goes. So here's here's my definition of control. I think control is a good word, though it's not a biblical word. We need to define it biblically. So what is control biblically defined? Here it is. It's a prideful striving after the comprehensive sovereign governance that only God possesses. It's a prideful striving after the comprehensive sovereign governance that only God possesses. And we... we, um, Oh, we got to look at this. Um, hold your place there, and uh, turn with me back to the book of Daniel. Uh, let's let's look over the the shoulder of our friend Daniel as he tells us about this guy Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had some control issues, didn't he? I, I mean, this is you know you could write a book, Nebuchadnezzar, a study in biblical control, couldn't you? This guy was was out of control in his pursuit of control. Um, so, so you recall, we, uh, uh, both Pastor Terry and I have, have preached this text recently, so it's familiar to most of you. But you'll remember that this Babylonian king does something, and, and you remember he sets up this this uh, this great image that uh, most commentators believe was of a statue of himself that the people were to bow down to, and of course. Uh, the three Jewish teenagers, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, would not defile themselves and, and break the first two commandments of the Bible by bowing down and worshiping this statue. So you, you know the story. Um, 
He's going he's gonna to throw them in the fiery furnace. But before Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace, he wants to give them a second chance. I mean, he really did like these young men. They were great workers, great servants, the Bible tells us. There was no one like them amongst the youths of Babylon. So, so I mean, he's about to kill three of his great you know, best workers. So you think he's going to give these boys uh, one more chance. So ne- uh, Daniel chapter 3 Uh, Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian names, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, verse 15, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, then very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Uh oh. Do you see him just get caught up in that? Now, 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 to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar's credit, he, he was he was the ruling king of the known superpower of this day, right? I mean, this is this is the guy. This is the guy that that's got the keys to the nuclear option. I mean, obviously they have nuclear option, but, but that that's that's the metaphor of how much power this guy has in this day. But do you see it go to his head? What God is there that can stop me? A prideful striving after the comprehensive sovereign governance that only God possesses. Do you see See how it slips right over into that? Flip the page. Look at chapter 4, verse 30. This is after Daniel has given him the, the, the dream and interpretation of what will happen to him if he does not repent. Remember, he's going to be banished to eat grass like the ox. He's going to be out in the field. He's going to be like an animal almost, the scripture tells us. And um, so that, that vision comes and goes. Daniel warns him. A year passes, the Bible tells us. And one day, chapter 4, verse 30, the king is walking around uh, the roof of the royal palace and he reflects, verse 30, and says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Right Now, the guy did build some really cool stuff in Babylon. But his error is in believing that he has more control and power than God has actually given him. And you know the story. God, God spends the next uh, little time humbling this, this great, wicked, horrible king until he bows before the, the foot of Yahweh himself, the Jewish God. Okay, so, so those are good examples of what we're, we're getting at when we think about what is sinful control. You can head back to Proverbs 3 now if you want. Um, you getting the idea here? Does this make sense? And uh, we're, we're on a little bunny trail here, but, but I, I think we need this background to appreciate what God is going to tell us uh, through Solomon in Proverbs 3. Now, now, this is interesting. The only human control that the Bible authorizes is a spirit-empowered self-control for the purpose of glorifying God and biblical obedience. God does want you to control something, and it's yourself. And we do that as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. According to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right? You guys know that verse. And that self-control then causes us to pursue these stewardships, these things that God has legitimately asked us to do, but we do it for His glory 
not for some, you know, prideful assurance or peace or, or gratification that we get in our own life. It's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on control before. Have you? And as I got into this, I thought, man, we, this could be like a six part series if we wanted it to be. And there's, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff the Bible helps us to, to see in this regard. And we'll, we'll restrain ourselves. We'll exercise self control at this point in that regard. Um, now, this is ironic, and we've got to get back to, to Proverbs here. This is ironic. The righteous control that God's just described here, ironically, this righteous control is only realized when one denies himself. You see that? You cannot pursue righteous, godly control in your life until you first denied yourself. And as Luke tells us in chapter 9, uh, quoting Jesus, and take up your cross and follow him. Right? Isn't that interesting? You, you, you find control by denying control. You, you come to pursue God in righteous obedience by first humbling yourself and denying yourself um, before him. Okay, and, and we know that because one of the themes of the book of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the fear of the Lord? It's submitting to the God who made you. It's trusting him. It's, it's saying, I'm not in control, you're in control, and so I submit myself to you in trusting, submissive um, obedience. Okay, now... We, we notice too, and we gotta get back here, the inherent tendency to pursue sinful control is often exaggerated and developed further into a life-dominating reality by various experiences. And again, we'll, we'll exercise some self-control here, but I'm thinking here of like war, where we get phenomenons known as PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, close encounters with death, abuse or assault, or other traumatic experiences. That this, this, our tendency to sinfully pursue control is further developed and even exaggerated through certain human experiences. And again, we'll talk about those things another time, but you've got to understand that, that this, this tendency is the root of some of those other struggles that people that we know face and, and suffer from. Now, now, here's what's interesting. What does this have to do with fear? Um, fear and control are a teeter-totter. What do I mean by that? Well, when I'm just going to put this up here so you can you can see it. Uh, okay, so get, so get this: when you feel when you feel out of control, your fear escalates, right? And when you when you feel more in control, your fear subsides. You notice that? And, and, and that, that's why we have to talk about control, because Solomon is going to introduce us to this topic of fear, and you won't understand the counsel that he gives if you don't understand the fear control teeter-totter. Okay? So, when my perception of my own control is up, my sinful fear will be down. When my perception of my own control is down, my sinful fear will be up. Because that create, that sinful fear is like, ah, I gotta go do something, I gotta, I gotta do something with my kids, or do something with my parents, or do something with my finances. And, and that, that sinful fear, that sinful panic is what drives us to pursue control over this area that we perceive is out of control in our life. And, and you guys know how this can get, there, there are people who literally cannot relax unless they completely feel like they're in control of everything. Or more often, 
there's one or two areas of their life that have become idolatrous where they say, okay, if my house is perfectly spotless, you know, right? Or I just got that clean bill of health. All those pains, all those things. And then they wake up the next morning and they have another pain. Right? And they go right back to it. So you need to understand this. Sinful fear will lead me to pursue sinful efforts to either regain control or at least my perception of control. And I, and I have there probably one of the best examples of this in the Bible, just, just to, I'm not making this up. I mean, it's actually in the Bible, is Jacob and Rebekah's plan to deceive Isaac. What's that all about? I don't want my boy not being the the one who gets the blessing and remember because Jacob was the younger who was going to get the blessing in that in that economy in that family Esau's going to get and and Rebecca says that that's that's totally unacceptable okay she wants her boy to have the blessing okay this is a woman say it with me ladies that had control issues okay now now we uh, this is funny um you tend to think when you read the literature that, that this, this control thing is more of a woman issue. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we men, we men struggle with this. We just don't like to admit it. Um, and, uh, you know, it is the final four, uh, week and, um, basketball season is in its full bloom here. And believe you me, I have been around some wonderful, wonderful men that have manifested the fact that they have serious control issues over something as theologically significant as college basketball these last couple of weeks. So anyway, I think this uh, this condemns us all. So, so what does she do? Her sinful fear that her son would get the blessing leads her to do what? What does she do? She deceives. She deceives her own husband. This... This is the patriarch of Israel. Um, this, this is the Rebecca that, that, you know, was watering the flock. I mean, this is, you know, and, and you guys know the story that there's this concocts the plan, you know, I'll, I'll make the meal. You go out and disguise yourself as your hairy brother and we'll see. We'll take advantage of your father's ailing eyesight. And here we go. And it's a great example of the teeter totter. Okay, as she developed that sinful fear, she says, I have to do something about it. Instead of, you know, here's what's interesting. Um, Isaac and Rebecca were told before the boys were even born, what were they told by God? Yeah, the older would serve the younger. Jacob is the promised one. So it's, it's not like she's going, well, gee, she knew the counsel of God. She knew God's plan ahead of time. And yet she chose to do that. Now, now I know, again, you and I never do that, right? I mean, we, we know God's plan. We never try to go around that or, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to help God out a little bit. I like that, Nick, yeah. Okay, so now sometimes, and here's where we connect back to Proverbs. Sometimes the sinful fear associated with perceived loss of control can be extreme and overwhelming. We, we all know people who this sort of loss of control, this fear is overwhelming. And when that results in physiological symptoms, we call that a panic attack. A panic attack is a sudden overwhelming sense of fear that results in physiological symptoms that are often debilitating. Average panic attack lasts about 10 minutes. Uh, some people have one or two in their life. Other people, it becomes a more regular issue. 
And this is interesting. I did some research this last week for you guys. Um, panic attacks were not a clinical diagnosis until 1980 when the DSM-3 came out. Now, they were talked about in some of the early psychological literature, uh, usually talked up to, you know, you have nerve issues or, you know, hysteria, something like that. But here's the thing. This book was written in the 9th century B.C., and it describes a panic attack that took modern psychology till the 20th century to document. I think that's pretty cool. And it's one more reminder that this word is the word of God and it's sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, back to Proverbs chapter 3. Why on earth are we talking about panic attacks in Sunday school, Pastor Keith? Well, that's a great question. Look back at the context. Remember, this context is about lady wisdom. This is, gentlemen, this is the woman that you want. This is the woman that you want to pursue before any other relationship uh, lady wisdom, as we learned last time, the personification of wisdom and instruction, the, the point of this book. And we noted where we left off last time some of her benefits. Verse 23, then you will walk in your way securely. When, when, when you find and walk with wisdom, you will walk in your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. There's our introduction of our word. Then you, when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So one of the benefits of, of wisdom is you will not struggle with fear like most other people do. Now, that's a pretty big claim, isn't it? We say, well, lady wisdom, man, I, I gotta, I gotta go find her. That's, that's wonderful. How do we, how does it work that wisdom actually addresses the topic of fear? And that's why he's going to expand in our verses, 25 and 26. Look at this. That was all introduction, by the way. Here we go. Don't be afraid of fear. Look back at verse 25. Do not be afraid of sudden fear. Isn't that weird? Solomon is saying to his son, don't be afraid of being afraid. Now, that's why we have to think about control and sinful fear and all that, because um, don't be afraid of sudden fear. He's saying, don't be afraid of overwhelming fear. Now, we think about what, what, what would cause that. Maybe the sudden loss of someone or something val- valuable, a uh, catastrophic experience, the loss of control, as we talked about, or the experience of fear um, in the loss of control, Okay. Now, now here's here's the thing, and I don't know. Did you? How many of you know someone who struggles or has panic attacks? Okay, so what? Maybe fifteen percent of you, twenty percent of you. Um, here, my experience in talking to people who who struggle with these panic attacks, and, and even the, the the clinical literature confirms this also. Most people that struggle with panic attacks will tell you that their greatest fear is another attack. It's the fear of the fear. It's the fear. Uh, they fear the experience of overwhelming fear. They, they fear the experience of feeling completely out of control. And, and, that, and that's what Solomon is getting at here. He's saying, you don't have to be afraid of this sudden, overwhelming, catastrophic fear in your life. You say, well, why not? Uh, in fact, he adds to it. He says, um, you know, or the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Um, you know, the, the, the sudden... Uh, arrival of your enemies to kill you. And you say, well, shouldn't we be afraid of that? Don't be afraid of fear, he says. 
son, don't... What a great thing to tell your, your kids. You think about it, yeah, teenagers, young people in the back here. To, to, to walk with God is to come to a place where you don't have to fear fear. You don't have to be afraid of these experiences of life that are whatever you would say, this would be the worst thing for it to happen to me. You don't have to fear the possibility of that experience. And what a, what a wonderful blessing that, that, that not only we parents could offer to our children, but, but how does the gospel, how, how does knowing God help us to know something of that? So this is a great time to just pull the car over for a minute and ask a simple question. What is that picture? And this is not just the young people in the room. What do we fear? And, and, uh, and maybe something is coming into your mind right now. Maybe this is something to think about later this afternoon. What is it that you would say, if that happened, I couldn't deal with it? And whatever that, whatever that is, whatever that picture is, whatever that subject is, is what Solomon wants to talk to us about. He says, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of that, whatever that picture is. It's interesting, the word fear is used in Proverbs 23 times. Look at this. Of these, 21 of them occur, uh, reference the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Most of the time when Proverbs talks about fear, it's not talking about this kind of fear. It's saying the fear of the Lord. And that's, again, one of the themes that we've seen. How do we come to the place where we're not afraid of fear? And the Bible says, by having another fear. We've talked about this before in earlier chapters of Proverbs. When you come to fear the Lord, you will not sinfully fear other things. And that is one of the most wonderful blessings. If God is at your right hand, you won't be shaken. Our psalm that we read, Psalm 56, uh, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I will put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And he says later on, and this I know. Why do I not be afraid? And this I know that God is for me. And if you think about that, going back to control, the, the one who does micromanage every, every neutrino in the universe, every situation, every person, every experience, every circumstance, he does run the whole thing. And he says, I'm on your team. And not just I'm on your team as, as, as a, a winning coach, but as the scripture tells us, a loving father who knows his children, who loves his children, who's working all things for their good. He's at our side. And, and it's, it's that reverence of him. It's that trust in him, his, that love and submission and, and understanding and say, I know I will be okay because you're at my right hand. That's what silences all other fear. And young people, to, to, to learn this young, to learn this early. Uh, when I was a kid, it was popular, the no fear shirts. Some of you remember that. Um, and that, that was just, you know, youthful ignorance, youthful stupidity. You know, no fear, yeah, I'm going to go jump off a cliff. Okay, well, that's real smart, right? Um, but you really can have no fear. But it's by fearing the Lord above all other things. Okay. Now, fears, there are some fears that are sinful, the Bible tells us. The fear of man instead of the fear of God. We've, we've looked at that. The fear of things temporal rather than eternal. 
And notice this, fear that God forbids. And right here God says, what does he say in verse 25? Do not be afraid. So, so here, this is, this is going to sound weird, but it is sinful to be afraid when God says not to. It's sinful to be afraid when God says not to. And, and that's not like, you know, obviously there are right fears, you know, that, that sort of natural fear of danger. I walk out, I see an oncoming car, and my adrenal glands kick in. Ah! You know, step out of the way. Okay, that's a good fear. We're thankful for that. We, we're all alive today because of that, that fear. But sinful fears, fears that God says, do not be afraid. If we are operating in fear... That's wrong. That's sinful. And that's why we have to understand this teeter-totter. If we're going to kill this, we got to deal with this, don't we? You, you don't address sinful fear without addressing the fact that we want to micromanage areas of our life. We want to pursue control where God has said that's not your job to do. But you know what, guys? We have a, such a better option, and that is to submit to and trust the one who does control all things. And that's exactly what Psalm is going to tell us to do. Don't be afraid of sudden fear or the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. That could either refer to the day of judgment as the ESV and New Living translate it. I think it makes more sense the way our NASB Bibles and New King James translate it, the day when the wicked attack. Don't be afraid of the day when your enemies come and attack. You say, why? Because the Lord is your confidence. Uh, what, what a what a sweet verse. Do not be afraid of sudden fear or the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Why? Why should I not be afraid in the midst of certain slaughter? Because God is at your right hand. He's your con- In fact, it's interesting. The word confidence means trust. You don't have to control because he is in control. You don't have to micromanage because he's running the universe. And if he's at your right hand, we can trust him. We replace sinful fear, sinful control with a confidence in the Lord. That is the solution to sinful fears. Now, and again, we, we've, we fleshed this out before. A confidence in the Lord implies a trust in him, a submission to him, and a fear of him above all else. And, and look at those verses. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We read Psalm 56. Uh, Psalm 112, verses uh, 7 and 8, and Psalm 118, those are wonderful verses that say, you don't have to fear other things if you're trusting in the Lord. Um, One of those says, um, do not put your trust in people. Don't put your trust in princes, because they'll fail you. Put your trust in the Lord. Uh, Psalm 16, uh, you guys are probably getting sick of hearing about this verse, uh, because we love it so much. Um, I have set the Lord continually before me, and because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Think think about the promise of that verse. If he's at your right hand, and you are trusting that in an active way, in the moment when you're tempted to be fearful, God says, you won't be. You won't be. He will keep your foot from being caught. That goes back to verse 23. He will smooth your paths. He will take you, take you safely through. Now here, here's, 
Here's the $100 connection. I don't know if you saw it. We've been talking about Lady Wisdom, right? We've been talking about this wonderful commodity of wisdom, this, this skill, this mindset, this way of living. And yet what we've seen, what Solomon is showing us here, is that to walk in the way of wisdom is actually synonymous. It's the same thing as having a trust in and a confidence in the Lord. So wisdom is not some abstract thing that you pursue as a discipline. It's a function. Listen, it's a function of your relationship of trust and submission to your God. That's what this is. The one who walks in wisdom is the one who fears the Lord. Bringing those two things connected back. And and so you know what that tells us, once again, is that we we don't become wise people that enjoy the benefits that we see in this book without a relationship with the Lord. Those things are byproducts or fruits of our walk with God. Okay? So you do not have to be afraid of fear because our Lord can be our confidence and he will keep our foot from slipping as we trust him and as we submit to him. It's good stuff, isn't it? Great verses here. Let's pray. Father, we we love you. Thank you that, that we can submit to you who in your sovereign way uh, control all things. We know you to be good. We know you to be trustworthy. We know of your kind ways to us. Lord, would you help us to identify ways that we are sinfully controlling or sinfully fearing things in our life, that we might uh, see those things as in opposition uh, to trust in you and submission to you. And as we repent, uh, might we remind ourselves uh, that you're for us, that you are our wonderful Heavenly Father as we are a part of your family in Christ. And so we we don't have to fear, uh, but we can have a great confidence uh, to trust in you and to submit to you and know that your ways are always best. Lord, thank you that, um, man, we, we, we show every day, we show every day that we don't control everything. Uh, we're thankful that you do. Help us to trust you in Christ's name. Amen.